0: This week, proposed legislation threatens to upend Chapter 11 status quo for equity sponsors, a Johnson & Johnson off LTL management test limits of Texas two-step and first-day hearing, Puerto Rico plan of adjustment and limbo, and Limetree Bay struggles to meet case milestones and faces dip defaults. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Billon will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's deep dive, in light of recent developments in the Asian high-yield bond market with China Evergrande Group, we're offering listeners a taste of REARC's coverage of the Asian high-yield space with a replay of an April 7 webinar presentation on trading and distressed debt through creative enforcement approaches to unlock value of distressed onshore assets that are otherwise off-limits to offshore investors. It's Friday, October 22nd. On Wednesday, October 20th, Democratic senators and representatives introduced the Stop Wall Street Looting Act of 2021, which joins a group of bills that could have major implications for the high-yield debt industry and large Chapter 11 cases. According to a press release and summary issued by Senator Elizabeth Warren, the bill would generally make controlling equity sponsors jointly and severally liable for all debt incurred by a target firm and its affiliates, including for legal judgments, liabilities in connection with violations of the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, and pension-related obligations. The bill would also void indemnification provisions requiring companies to reimburse equity sponsors for liability to third parties, prohibit companies from making capital distributions or laying off workers for two years after an LBO, and provide employees and creditors with the right to sue to enforce these provisions. With respect to Chapter 11, the bill would also dramatically upend the current fraudulent transfer regime related to corporate takeovers and LBOs by eliminating the safe harbor under Section 546E of the Bankruptcy Code for a newly created class of change and control transactions. In addition, for such transactions, the bill would create a presumption of insolvency if certain factors apply, and the federal look-back period would be extended to eight years from two. Additionally, the bill would end the widespread practice of Chapter 11 debtors using what the bill calls sham independent directors to investigate and settle claims related to potentially actionable pre-petition transactions. Under the proposal, litigation claims brought against company insiders must be brought by a trustee representing the creditor committee rather than the debtor in possession. For an in-depth discussion of specialized independent bankruptcy directors, listeners should download our August 6th podcast where Eric Sean Daly talks to Jared Elliott's M. Gregory Chair in Business Law and Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of Law, where they discuss Jared's article, The Rise of Bankruptcy Directors, which analyzes the proliferation of bankruptcy experts who often join boards of directors on the eve of a bankruptcy filing as so-called independent directors and the impact of such directors on bankruptcy outcomes, including creditor recoveries.
1: LTL Management, the new entity spun off from Johnson & Johnson in its October 12th Texas two step divisional merger, faced a heated first day hearing on Wednesday, where creditors, including the Plaintiff Steering Committee in the Talc Multidistrict Litigation, vehemently opposed LTL's motion to enforce the automatic stay as to JJ non debtor affiliates and other Talc litigation defendants. Although the debtor asked the court to consider the motion at the first day hearing, Judge Craig Whitley declined the request and told LTL to file an adversary proceeding which the debtors initiated on Thursday. During Wednesday's hearing, the judge permitted the debtor to present oral argument in support of a temporary restraining order that would bar continued litigation against the J&J non-debtor affiliates. Judge Whitley also questioned whether the Western District of North Carolina is the proper venue for the debtor's case and scheduled a venue hearing for November 10th at 9:30 a.m. Eastern, suggesting that either New Jersey or Delaware might be more appropriate venues. The judge remarked, quote, I've got an open mind about it, but said you've got some convincing to do as to whether we're in the right place here. LTL's adversary complaint asked the bankruptcy court to enjoin the prosecution of talc-related claims and other courts against the debtor, non-debtor affiliates, and certain other third-party defendants. The stay issue is critical to LTL's case and Johnson & Johnson's Texas two-step maneuver. Failure to obtain an injunction would cause irreparable harm to the estate and defeat the purpose of the bankruptcy, says the complaint.
0: In Puerto Rico news, legislation authorizing the issuance of new general obligation bonds and contingent value instruments contemplated in the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment remained in limbo after the Senate moved Thursday night to indefinitely shelve the measure, House Bill 1003, because it lacks the votes needed for passage. The Senate's move, which kept the bill alive, came hours after the Promessa Oversight Board stated that if the legislation isn't enacted by Friday— October 22nd, it would be forced to seek adjournment of the Title III plan confirmation hearing slated to open on November 8th. The House and Senate are not too back in session until Tuesday, October 26th. The snag in the Senate centers on concerns among various lawmakers that pension protection language in the measure is not sufficient to ensure zero pension cuts in the Title III court in connection with the plan of adjustment. After a meeting on the Title III exit legislation on Sunday, the Oversight Board and Puerto Rico government leaders expressed optimism that the bill was on a path to enactment this week after, the incorporation of provisions reflecting accords with the Oversight Board, including zero cost to public pensions in the plan and funding for the University of Puerto Rico municipalities. The plan for the Title III debtors, the Commonwealth, the Employee Retirement System, the, or ERS, and the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA, is overwhelmingly supported by key constituencies, having received only a handful of objections by the objection deadline on Tuesday.
1: A status conference Monday highlighted the headwinds facing a going concern sale of the Lime Tree Bay assets after dip lender 405 Sentinel provided the debtors with notices of default under the dip, first on October 11th, relating to a failure to pay the September interest on the facility, and again on October 15th, relating to a failure to make a $5 million dip paydown due under the dip budget. A follow-up status conference on the dip default issues originally set for October 21st is scheduled for Monday, October 25th. Under the dip budget, the dip facility is scheduled to be paid off in full by the end of October through funds freed via the liquidation of the debtor's product held as collateral by Jay Aaron, which filed a letter in response to the October 15th default notice underscoring its prior reservation of rights with respect to the dip budget. Alluding to his prior concerns on the feasibility of the dip projections, Judge Jones said the issues with the dip were not surprising, but that he wanted, quote, someone to put their name on a pleading, end quote, before the court took action. Regarding the sale process, the debtors' investment banker, Michael O'Hara of Jefferies, said that the case milestones were the biggest issue as potential buyers looked to finalize their diligence. He said that efforts to extend the case timeframe through replacement dip financing were unsuccessful so far, as the debtors have been unable to implement replacement financing ahead of the October 25th stocking horse bid deadline. Given the existing sale timeframe, O'Hara said they were looking to put something in place this week to continue the process, potentially including liquidation bids. Top red stories this week included litigation coverage, Moby refiles bondholder action in New York State Court, Morgan Stanley will seek sanctions for a frivolous federal suit. Interim Final Rule to No Surprise Act could reduce envision EBITDA by up to 150 million to 170 million. Cut team health EBITDA by $90 million. Legislative requirements drive significant trading volume. Aldrich Pump as best as claimants seek standing to avoid Texas two-step divisional mergers. Ask court to substantively consolidate debtors and train operating entities until set confirmation hearing pushed to December 2nd from November 8th.
0: And now here's Jim from Houston with The Week Ahead. Well, good morning all and welcome to The Week Ahead, which will be dominated by earnings. Monday, October 25th, status conference in Lime Tree Bay. Tuesday, October 26th, earnings from Arch Coal and Matador Resources, and an emergency relief hearing in CBL, plus a confirmation hearing in Avianca. Wednesday, October 27th, earnings from Teva Pharmaceuticals and a fee application hearing in Malincrode. Thursday, October 28th, earnings from CNX, Peabody, U.S. Steel, and PBF, along with a hearing in Aldrich Pump. And Friday, it's Malincrode again with a hearing, along with earnings from SM Energy. That is all from me. Back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, in light of recent developments in the Asian high-yield bond market with China Evergrande Group, we're providing listeners a taste of re coverage of the Asian high-yield space with a replay of an April 7 webinar where senior credit analyst James Xi and John Han, partner at Cobrain Kim in Hong Kong, discuss trading in distressed debt through creative enforcement approaches to unlock value of distressed onshore assets that are otherwise off-limits to offshore investors. And they take a look at troubled Chinese property developer, China Fortune Land Development, and exploring the various litigation recovery mechanisms that activist investors can use to maximize value.
2: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the REORG webinar series. I'm Shasha Shadai, Managing Editor for China at the Asia Core Credit by REORG. Today, I'll moderate a discussion on China Fortune Land development and creative recovery mechanisms. Since the default of China Fortune Land sent jitters across China's high yield market, Offshore investors have been monitoring the situation closely. This will pique interest in creative ways to unlock value of defaulter's onshore assets that are otherwise off limits to offshore investors. In this panel discussion, Reorg senior credit analyst James Shi will present the latest developments with the China Fortune Land. And John Han, partner of Cobra and Kim, will speak to potential litigation and recovery mechanisms by which activist investors May maximize, may maximize their value realization. Joining me on today's webinar are John Han, partner at a Cobra and a Kim in Hong Kong. John is admitted as a solicitor advocate in Hong Kong, the United States, and in the Dubai International Financial Center courts. Clients rely on his deep regional business knowledge and bilingual language capacities in cross-border disputes. John regularly leads large-scale cross-border matters to monetize substantial defaulted PRC loan and guarantee portfolios, where assets are concealed through complex offshore structures, trusts, and foundations, and where debtors and decision-makers are found in Europe, EMEA, and the U.S. James Shi is a senior credit analyst with Asia Core Credit by Reorg. James covers high-yield and distressed debt names and situations for Asia Core Credit. So let's get started. James.
3: Thank you, Shasha, And uh, thank you for everyone's joining uh, today's webinar. I'll start the discussion with a quick overview of the events timeline and the latest update as China Fortune Land Development uh, could become the biggest defaulted borrower from China in the international market with about 4.6 billion US dollar public bond outstanding. Rework has initiated an in depth coverage on China Fortune Land since June 2019, calling out various credit sensitive issues around its working capital, cash flow problems relating to its quasi uh, public private partnership business model, and a unique shareholder support involving, involving Ping An Group. In the beginning of 2021, there was a sharp sell off of China Fortune Land's public bonds both onshore and offshore on liquidity concerns of the company. On January the 8th, officials from Hebei government, from Shenzhen municipal government, held a meeting with China Fortune Land and pingan Group, uh, basically to ask for a, poten- a potential extension of financial support from pingan to China Fortune Land, which actually caused more volatility in China Fortune Land's offshore bonds and onshore off- bonds. And following on January the 19th, China Fortune Land missed an RMB 1.1 billion worth of trust loans. uh, Even though the company later managed to reach extension agreement with trust loan manager after regulators intervened on January 21st. However, on on February the 1st, uh, a creditor committee was formed in the first ever creditors meeting. Creditors' committee was co-chaired by Ping An and Industrial and Commercial Bank of China uh, on the same day, and uh, after sh- shortly uh, shortly after on the same day, China Fortune Land publicly announced a total overdue that principal and interest payment of approximately approximately RMB 5.3 billion for the first time. Uh, meanwhile, China Fortune Land also mentioned that as of January 31st, total cash of the company was around RMB uh, 23.6 billion out of which uh, 22.8 billion was restricted. That leaves the company about 800 million unrestricted cash. This is compared to an overall cash position of RMB uh, 38.6 billion as of Q3 2020, 2020. On February the 4th, Management at Ping An noted in the earnings call that Ping An is ready to book impairment losses on its RMB 54 billion exposure in China Fortune Land, uh, which was taken by the market that Ping An's further financial, su- uh, further financial support to China Fortune Land is very unlikely. China Fortune Land's offshore senior bond issuer, uh, the Cayman Registered Entity, appointed financial advisor and legal advisor on February 19th. To assist the company with liquidity problems, according to the company announcement. And following follow follow on, on February 26th, China Fortune Land uh, was unable to redeem its 530 million, 8.625% senior notes due february due February 2021, which was the first ever offshore senior bond non-payment for China Fortune Land. On March 29th, uh, Reorg has reported China Fortune Land has drafted the onshore debt restructuring plan entailing the introduction of two Hebei local government platforms to China Fortune Land. Uh, the, the plan right now is pending review with details unknown to the public at this at this moment. Uh, and at, at the end of March, China Fortune Land uh, total overdue debt principal and interest payment reached to RMB uh, 30, 37 billion in total. Uh, moving on to the next slide. Here is a capital structure, a uh, capitalization structure of China Fortune Land. Uh, and as shown in the chart, we can see that bank and other borrowings remain the largest part of the debt uh, at the pro- approximately 64% of total debt on for asset notes or ABNs and corporate bonds. On for corporate bonds, accounted for about 23% of total debt while offshore bonds only accounted for about 14% of total debt. we under, uh, Now we understand China Fortune Land is in the process of a two-speed restructuring, where the company plans to reach a debt restructuring agreement onshore first before the company addresses uh, any offshore debt crisis problems, uh, as opposed to adopting a holistic restructuring approach. Now, with the offshore bonds only accounting for 14% of total debt and no offshore creditor representative is included in the onshore creditors committee, some of the offshore creditors have to passively wait to see the result of the offshore research. Um, however, if, even if a consensual researching deal is offered. Or rich offshore bondholders could still consider their potential options and where value resides in China Fortune Land's corporate structure. Uh, now I'll leave the stage to John to share his thoughts on the potential options for active active bondholders uh, and what are the available tools to access that value in China Fortune Land case and in general.
4: Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I will break the talk today into three sections. The first is just a very brief introduction of Cobra and Kim's platform. Um, uh, I'm a partner here in the Hong Kong office. Second, uh, we'll talk about China fortune land development, just a quick preliminary look at what activist investor options may be. Uh, It's based on public information. It's not meant to be legal advice, obviously, but but there's some interesting features about it that we will try to provide you with on today's call. Um, And then lastly, uh, some hypothetical scenarios and how we uh, used creative approaches to deal with uh, defaulted bond monetization strategies in the past so um, very quickly Cobra and Kim is a disputes only firm. Um, we have 17 offices uh, and we're laser focused on what we call claim monetization so it's not a um, it's not a general uh, firm that practices everything. So things like bonds, private debt, large judgments, large arbitration awards. So just to give you an example, um, we're enforcing the two largest arbitration in the awards in the world right now, including an $8.7 billion arbitration award under ICSID against the Republic of Venezuela and then a $9 billion ICC award against the Republic of Nigeria. Uh, just to give you some, uh, some some background about the type of work that we focus on. So. We come from a law enforcement background. Um, So uh, our partners have worked at the Department of Justice in the United States, the Korean Police Force, the PRC Prosecution Service. And so we treat these cases like law enforcement, prosecution type cases. Um, We're focused on creative approaches, not just standard litigation. Uh, So we'll discuss today uh, things that can create monetization events, not a check-the-box approach, but focused on return on investment. And making enforcement cash flow positive as soon as we can. And this includes a hybrid between legal strategies, but also non legal approaches, such as transactional strategies, financial solutions, public relations, and things like that. Um, and then, lastly, uh, because we don't have a transactional practice, we're often adverse to large financial institutions. Um, and in jurisdictions where it's permitted, the firm has very flexible financial arrangements where we can share financial risk with clients. Uh, next slide, please. So this is a preliminary organizational structure that we put together for China fortune land development. I'm going to take about 10 to 12 minutes to walk through what we think are some interesting features in this. But before we do that, um, there's certain things uh, in any enforcement scenario that you'll need to do, uh, which I'll cover in this case. So first, you have to get a foundational judgment. In this case, it's going to be in Hong Kong under the terms of the note. Then you have to go through the foreclosure process. Um, But There are short-term strategies that you'll wanna look to to create mounting risk events for um, the opponent uh, to try to create monetization without having to go through years of litigation and spend millions of dollars of uh, resources. So these cases are not solved through static plans. They're solved through identifying opportunities and seizing on them. So um, we'll go over what an enforcement scenario might look like. uh, Some interesting features that I found on this situation and some additional leads that that you might want to uh, pull on. So um, this is important to note that even if uh, for investors who don't wanna take an activist position but are just looking to trade in and to underwrite enforcement risk or uh, that want to negotiate in the restructuring uh, but to improve bargaining position and at least make an informed commercial decision on what their alternatives are. So um, in this case, if you look at the Cayman issuer, which is in the purple box, uh, second to the left, CFLD Cayman, um, you know, what, a, what a very standard uh, check-the-box strategy would be to appoint a provisional liquidator in Cayman, um, that's almost certainly going to get you nowhere. It's an, it's an SPV, uh, very, very unlikely it has any assets, any people, any salient records. Um, So it's really unclear um, why you would begin there, although um, that's often the case uh, when people look at these strategies. Um, What what a medium interest plan is, and then this will take us to what what we think are some of the interesting features of the organizational structure, is uh, because China Fortune Land Development, the listed entity is a guarantor, um, and the, the notes require litigation to be brought in Hong Kong High Court under Hong Kong law, The first step could be to uh, still a check the box approach but slightly more um, sophisticated than appointing a provisional liquidator sue in hong kong achieve a foundational judgment in hong kong and then once you have that use that to uh, obtain charging orders over the wholly owned hong kong subsidiaries which are in blue in the center of the chart cfld international and global industrial investment limited Um, those have paid up capital of um, around 365 million dollars. Obviously, you know that doesn't reflect the equity value. It doesn't tell you anything about the debt, um, and it doesn't, in some even, uh, rise to the amount of the offshore debt. But um, it gets you somewhere. And, and as we'll discuss a little bit later, um, the, the 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 smart approach here is not to go through and to gradually piece together a recovery that totals up. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. The, the smart approach is to um, try to find um, vulnerabilities that can be le- legitimately legitimately exploited. Um, and then once, once uh, the two Hong Kong entities have been charged, you can do things like uh, auction off the equity uh, using an order for sale or appointment of an equitable receiver to um, eventually try to crawl down the organizational structure and then realize some of the assets over here on the left in Singapore and the project companies in Indonesia. So what what would that look like? Um, Appointment of an equitable receiver in Hong Kong, uh, they could, the the receiver could then um, go through, make corporate governance changes at the subsidiary entities, the Singapore level, liquidate the assets in Singapore, and then pay everything up as distributions to the creditors, um, the bondholders in in this case. So um, second, uh, what else can you do with this? So because the foundational judgment would be in Hong Kong and there is a mutual arrangement for recognition of judgments between Hong Kong and mainland China. You could reverse import any judgment uh, to the PRC through the mutual arrangement on recognition of judgments. Uh, In this case, we appear to meet the criteria. There's an exclusive forum clause. And so um, this is something that one would look to and to tap into mainland PRC assets in addition to the offshore assets, which, which do appear to be pretty abundant. At this point, two other things that I like about this org structure, in addition to the um, the, the going concern project companies in Singapore and Indonesia, um, there's actually some contact points with the the U.S. So there's a wholly owned sub, CFLD U.S. Inc., and um, and then there's there's some litigation that was uh, commenced three years ago in California state court against another hedge fund called One Nine Five Five Capital Fund. Um, the reason that these are interesting touch points is cross-border discovery. So uh, oftentimes what we look for are um, the locations of individuals with knowledge. If there's common directors between the U.S. Um, entities and the uh, the guarantor, um, that those are people that we'd want to develop information from. And of course, the U.S. discovery system is famously broad. We'd want to leverage that. There um, there's statutes under U.S. law that allow litigants to open proceedings just to take discovery. So the statute is called 28 U.S.C. Section 1782. Um, Under that statute, a note holder who's suing in Hong Kong could open a case and take a seven hour videotape deposition of a director of CFLD about assets that are realizable of uh, through enforcement of the note, for example. And then through that arbitrage where you're taking discovery in a discovery-friendly jurisdiction such as the U.S., and then channeling it into enforcement proceedings, perhaps say in the PRC or in Singapore, um, you can you can generally realize a lot of a lot of value in that way. Um, the California litigation that I mentioned would have public uh, publicly filed evidence and records, so we'd want to mine that to um, to see where we could get to. So, um, but then, so this is the I would say the the medium interesting approach. The the basic least interesting approaches to appoint a provisional liquidator at the Cayman level. Medium approach is what I just talked about, to uh, file the foundational litigation in Hong Kong, realize Singaporean assets, um, and then go from there. Still, it's going to be very time intensive and resource intensive. Um, but this is uh, there's, there's some interesting things that usually start to unfold as you uh, litigate these cases. And so what we are looking for is short-term monetization events. So as I stated in the beginning, um, the, offshore, uh, the offshore debt is very large. It's very unusual to find a giant pot of money or even several giant pots of money to satisfy the entire par value of those. Um, in this case, based on the paid up capital, it looks like it's, it's not going to do it. Uh, it's expensive. It's time consuming. You have to go through um, incremental foreclosures. So what you want to do is um, there are legitimate ways for creditors to identify and develop critical vulnerabilities uh, that can be used legitimately to create pressure on things like supply chains, um, financing relationships, uh, triggering cost defaults, all of which are um, can entirely legitimate creditor's rights to develop. And, um, and so what you would want to do is, as you go down the path of the foundational strategy, which we just talked about, which is a, a need to do to um, Things, events will start to change, and then through those, you want to look for some of these opportunities. Um, when you identify those opportunities, you want to seize them immediately. So you want to look for uh, assets, which we've already talked about, but you also want to look for people. Um, oftentimes, there's personal guarantors um, that are the keys to unlocking enforcement cases. There, uh, I understand there are none. Are none in this case? Um, and so uh, basically through seizing on these opportunities selectively as they come up and controlling the tempo of events, you can you can start to create some mounting settlement events um, that to try to achieve a short-term resolution. There's no guarantee, but there's situations in the past where we've had extremely challenging enforcement scenarios where the opponent was, um, as, you, as you've seen, we enforce against governments a lot. So there's sovereign immunity that you have to deal with. But through creative use of cross defaults, um, and critical vulnerabilities and supply chains that are in certain jurisdictions that have enforcement friendly remedies, um, there's, been, there's been a full resolution of the case. Um, okay, so this is just a quick look. It's not a strategy. Um, uh, so, you, you know, we don't want anyone to rely on this, but you can tell just just from the information that we've been able to discern from some of the records, there are a lot of things that I find interesting that make this a good collection prospect that we would wanna look at immediately. So what's the upshot? Uh, I think the upshot is that the offshore holders should look to what their options are now, um, even though they may wanna wait for the onshore restructuring uh, negotiations to complete before they do anything. Because even if you don't do enforcement um, to make a commercially sound decision about what next steps are, you need to know what your options are um, in terms of cost, probability of success, time investment. And this will, Increased bargaining power in the restructuring discussion, even if it's never utilized. So, uh, China Fortune Land Development wants to continue doing business, and so it can't completely sacrifice its offshore um, its offshore business in order to do this. And so, these are, these are some really positive features. I think. Um, should we go to the next slide? Okay. So, why don't we move from our quick look at China Fortune Land Development to what a hypothetical case? Um, uh, based on a few, let's say two cases that we've done in the recent past that could spell out how things like this would look through creative enforcement remedies. So, um, and this is quite typical of a template that matches on to um, the geographic relationships of offshore notes. So oftentimes you have a, uh, a an issuer that's in the BVI, um, you have a guarantor that's in mainland China, um, you may have an offshore, uh, you, you may have an offshore side of the business that's incorporated somewhere um, in EMEA. And then oftentimes there's a, a personal guarantor uh, that's somewhere else um, outside of China in the BBI. So just to give you a, a quick short example. So this is this is based on a realistic case. We had a mainland uh, Chinese corporate debtor, a very large uh, claim amount, 6 billion US north of that. the um, It was personally guaranteed by an executive The the PRC assets had been completely exhausted in enforcement proceedings by investors. So um, what we did in that case is um, we we were the first to take claims against the personal guarantor offshore. Uh, We first, one of the key things here is always to find the personal guarantor. So we were able to locate this individual in California. And through um, some of our investigation, we were able to identify information that much of um, the holding structure in the current business investment opportunities were held through a very young individual who happened to be the child of an employee um, holding about half a billion dollars in company shares. So that doesn't make, make sense. The structure of the current existing assets of the PG are held through a complicated network of BVI companies. Um, so what we did was we, um, we first, uh, had the award recognized and uh, obtained a freezing injunction in the BBI over the entire corporate structure. we um, Over the EMEA uh, network of the business, which was held through a Dutch holding company, we obtained something called a conservatory arrest over the shares. So um, the, uh, the Netherlands, maybe people uh, are less familiar, has very friendly um, attachment laws based on its maritime history. Um, and then through that, we were able to develop some ancillary disclosure, not unlike in Hong Kong, about assets through the network of um, of European companies that sits below the um, the, the Netherlands entity. Then we uh, went after the personal guarantor directly. So we um, we sued the individual in the United States. Uh, we obtained a post judgment in personum injunction against them, and then served it on financial institutions. And so he would have the individual would have trouble uh, living day to day life in any kind of way. And then we put them in a debtor's examination, which is um, seven hours uh, under videotape, under oath, uh, but in front of a U.S. federal magistrate uh, judge who will be supervising. And, um, you know, whereas in a a regular civil deposition, people feel very comfortable saying they don't know almost any information, uh, including, you know, the size of their home and things that are just basically ridiculous. Um, It's very dangerous to play that game in front of um, in front of a, a judge. Um, and, then, and then lastly, um, of course, on the eve of all this, this um, the, the individual filed for chapter 11. And so in, within the course of 24 hours, we switched contexts into the chapter 11 case and challenged that. So the, the strategy in this case, um, which is very, very typical, but not the same as China fortune land, is that when you look for a, um, uh, when, when there are personal guarantors, there's an agency problem where there's a joint liability between the individual and the company and uh, the individual can settle their personal debts with corporate assets. And so we found a lot of um, fruitful results in doing that through legitimate means. So um, just, just briefly, um, before I, I pass it back over to Shasha, the I think there's three stages at which this type of thought process is, is important. So late stage, you have a judgment in hand already. You've decided to be activist. You want to maximize monetization through a combination of in-rem asset seizures and in personam techniques against perhaps uh, personal guarantors or discovery targets. In a middle stage, um, the claim hasn't quite matured into a judgment. Um, and then you have a decision point from a business perspective, whether to trade out to take a passive approach into liquidation or to take a more passive uh, activist approach like we're discussing here today and then early stage um, before one is traded in in conducting a more sophisticated assessment of enforcement risk you gain a competitive edge on the market in valuing claims and trading opportunities where others have not looked at this type of risk so thanks very much i'll pass back to you
2: all right thank you so much john and james for your presentations that wraps up the the presentation part of the the webinar and goes into my personal favorite Q&A part of the uh the webinar um first question let me go back to to you John um during your presentation you mentioned the term vulnerabilities several times where are some of the uh, common places where those vulnerabilities might exist
4: yeah so um oftentimes for creditors uh, who have a validly subsisting judgment, um, they look to go and seize assets. But what actually um, uh, can be done with those uh, credit rights, creditor rights, is to um, legitimately garnish targeted assets within a supply chain or to um, cause cross defaults and then uh, disqualification for certain financing relationships. And there's nothing, you know, this is completely legitimate in the rights of a creditor to conduct garnishments. But rather than conduct um, a scorched earth garnishment campaign where you're seizing tiny assets in multiple proceedings, you can be um, laser-targeted and precise in seizing just the right one for companies that want to con- keep going as a going concern um, to create problems with operations and so that uh, there's, there's in the short-term, possibly a monetization it.
2: Okay. Um- the strategy, John, that you just described all sound very interesting and very attractive, but I wonder from a risk appetite perspective, is this for everyone, for every creditors or what are some of the, um, the creditors that might best be positioned to take advantage of the strategy you just described?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, you have to have the stomach for it. I think it's for uh, creditors that are in the business of being activists um, by, by the nature of their business. Um, but there are creditors who uh, aren't distressed investors who are non-distressed investors and then just hold on to it after distress and then decide to become activist opportunistically when they suddenly realize there's actually some good options. Um, but I think more than that, um, this, is, this data point is actually really important for anyone who's holding the you note know, because it, it, um, it calibrates the discussions with the debtor in restructuring negotiations because it offers a plan B. Um, no one ever wants to go into a negotiation with no alternative because then you're going to, um, uh, they're basically, you're at, you're at the mercy of um, of the assurer and the guarantor in that case. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's for people who have the patience um, to go at it alone um, and for the uh, resources to finance litigation and take on a little bit of risk. But what the reward is that um, there's a potential Uh, Before a moratorium, it's a race, and you want to be first in that race. And the prize in the the race is to recover par. You don't have Mm. to share a peri with people. You get to cut everyone in line. Um, There always, of course, needs to be an analysis if there is some kind of administration that's later filed about unfair preference risk. But um, timing is everything before that happens, and this gives people the full advantage of being first in that. So obviously, you need to look at the terms, of a note to see if you have to go through the trustee. In this case, you have to have 25%. In other cases, you don't. Um, and, and so you might want to assemble a coalition of uh, an ad hoc group to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. We actually have a question coming in from the audience. Um, this question is for John. How could offshore creditors disrupt its onshore supply chain at a financing access?
4: It's a good okay. question. Yeah. So, um, so I think the first is that um, you need a foundational judgment. So this goes back to what we were talking about yesterday, which is kind of, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, in that, in order to kick things off, the terms of the note require you to sue in Hong Kong under Hong Kong law. That's the foundational judgment. It doesn't actually look to whether there's any assets here. And oftentimes, you look, you see offshore notes where there are no assets where you're required to sue, and so it's an empty, empty judgment. In this case, it's in Hong Kong. And there are assets in Hong Kong. However, um, what I, the term I used earlier is that you could reverse import a Hong Kong judgment into the PRC through the mutual arrangement for recognition of judgments between the PRC and the mainland. So this is a commercial contract. There's an exclusive forum clause. It seems to be eligible. Once that happens and you have a PRC contract, um, there's actually a lot of enforcement remedies that you can utilize in the PRC. Uh, oftentimes people think the PRC is not enforcement friendly. that's, um, that's actually uh, that's actually not true. The, the PRC can be very creditor friendly. There's advantages over the common law jurisdictions. There's um, a centralized database that courts can use to freeze accounts. There's an enforcement bureau in each court. Uh, the court can administer value and sell companies. And um, one of the interesting things that um, I'm sure people on this may already know about is the, the, the debtor's list that's maintained by the Supreme People's Court. And so um, if a company is placed on the debtor's list, which means that they fail to pay a subsisting judgment despite the ability to, um, that's going to disqualify them from all sorts of financing. When an individual is on the debtor's list, they can't travel very easily. And so that means if they're in China, they'll have a hard time leaving. And if they're outside of China, they'll have a hard time coming back to China. So um, so that's it. I mean, you'd have to go through the litigation process to get a judgment, but I think mapping out these vulnerabilities is quite important in the first instance because it'll tell you what your options are. Um, and of course, as part of that, you can consider whether there's risk of the restructuring of the corporate organization to undermine some of these plans, but oftentimes that's not so easy. Mm-hmm.
2: Great, thank you. Um, Another question from the audience, or actually 2 parts questions. The first part is kind of follow up to the first question. Um, Can you give an example of how a creditor can disrupt the supply chain of a company? Is there a minimal percentage of creditors necessary to take action?
4: Well, under the terms of the note, you have to have 25% to force the trustee to take action if they otherwise refuse to. That's not always true. A lot of notes have a savings clause, and you should look for this, investors, which basically says that once the note is matured, anyone can sue on their own behalf, less than 25%, uh, anything like that. So um, when a creditor, so supposing that that's all been done and then you have the foundational judgment, the way that you would do it is that you would garnish strategic accounts receivable. So that, for example, when um, uh, goods uh, or, In a regular supply chain, when goods are delivered uh, to um, uh, so in a a customer case when they're delivered to a customer, instead of the customer paying the debtor, the customer has to pay you as the creditor. um, To just to give you to give you one example, and so basically you would take over debts that are owed to the uh, the judgment debtor in this case. So if, if for example that was China Fortune Land. And then um, instead of paying China fortune land, they would have to pay the creditors and then that would create friction. Um, that would basically, the relationship would grind to a halt because the money isn't being exchanged in consideration for whatever value is being exchanged.
2: Okay, um, great. The next question also coming from the audience. How welcome are activists in Asia? When Farallon and BFAM led an activist strategy against a Kaiser group, they were slammed by even the Wall Street Journal.
4: Well, I do agree that I think activist investing is more um, mature in the in the West, and that it's uh, it's more well done. Um, I I don't think there's anything uh, illegitimate about it. Um, we're working on a number of very activist cases right now throughout the world, including in Hong Kong and mainland China, um, places like India, the United States, um, Europe, as I mentioned. Um, I I don't see it as a problem. Um, I didn't read the article that. That criticized the activist investors, but um, but there's a lot of very successful firms that do this, obviously, such as Elliott, and um, you know these are you know these are bedrock firms.
2: Great. Well, I love this. You know, uh, people in the audience, please keep sending your questions in by typing them in the Q and A box. Um, John, um, I have a question for you. So, from an enforcement perspective, what are some of the considerations before potential investors take a position?
4: Yeah, so, um, so there's there's a number of things. And so, first of all, um, investment funds are very good at underwriting risk, but oftentimes what we find when clients come to us is that they never considered enforcement risk or monetization risk. What happens in the event there's a default restructuring fails and you actually have to do something about it? And so um, it's important to wargame those enforcement scenarios so that you can get an accurate estimate of the cost timing and the percentage likelihood of recovery in that situation. In the worst case scenario, you always wanna plan for that. You wanna look for the location of assets and personal guarantors. Uh, So uh, in jurisdictions where they're susceptible to discovery to uh, court orders um, that they could then be punished for not adhering with. Um, You'd wanna look for pools of assets that no one thinks about. So, um, uh, you know, personal guarantor assets that a liquidator might not look into, uh, maybe because they view a certain jurisdiction such as mainland China as off um, bounds, which I don't think is correct. Um, In terms of looking at the offering documents themselves, I think forum selection is really important. So where do you have to sue uh, and under which which, uh, governing law? The reason is that because the foundational judgment is going to be the starting point for any enforcement strategy, you want to devise a highly portable judgment in a a, a jurisdiction that's creditor friendly and has a fast, reliable court system where there are assets or where there are people. So English common law judgments, Hong Kong judgments, Singapore judgments, fantastic for that. Um, And uh, uh, US judgments, also very portable, also very good. When you're dealing with mainland China and onshore assets, Hong Kong and Singapore are much better because um, they they can be, uh, Hong Kong, under the mutual arrangement, you can recognize and enforce in mainland China. Singapore, there's been recent guidance that indicates that that will be um, more and more the case. US judgments are not enforceable in mainland China, with the exception of a few very narrow recent exceptions. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, one last thing, you'd wanna look to the savings clause, as I mentioned. So um, I actually, I went through the note, um, the terms of the note before, and it, this doesn't exist in the China fortune land note, but, um, but it's very common in offshore bonds to have a provision that basically says that nothing shall interfere with the right of a note holder to bring suit to enforce after the, the due date expressed in the notes. And so you don't have to build a coalition of 25%. You don't have to deal with a trustee. Um, you can you can go be, be activist uh, on your own. And so these are all very important considerations to bear in mind before you trade in.
2: Great. Um, thank you, John. A question just came in from the audience. Could you please explain the risk of local government interference in the judicial process for restructuring of large companies? Will that prolong the enforcement process or inject more uncertainty
4: in recovery? Um, sorry, was Can you? Was yeah a question about local government interference? with- Local
2: government interference in
4: judicial process. For- in judicial process, yeah. So if you, in Beijing and Shanghai, I think the risk of this is extremely low. I think if you end up in some regional courts, the record is a little bit more mixed. Um, but I personally haven't had um, a, a lot of experience where this um, this is uh, this is a huge matter. So I mean, if for example, um, arbitration awards are great. So uh, because. Arbitration awards can be readily exported in an expedited procedure all over the world in the New York Convention. I don't like court litigation as much. Um, in that situation, an even better feature of arbitration awards is that if an arbitration award is not recognized in China for an arbitration award, there's an immediate um, supervisory appeal to, um, to a higher court in one of the major cities. And in that case, uh, can you still see me? Yes. Yeah, oh, okay. we can I, see I, you, hear you, go yeah. ahead, um, yeah. Yes, yeah. and, and in that case, um, there's, there's very unlikely to be any kind of inappropriate interference or anything like that. I, in short, I would give it some consideration if it's a tiny um, municipality, but uh, generally speaking, it hasn't been a huge problem for us. So. Okay,
2: great. That question actually serves as a nice segue into my next question. Um, talking about enforcement tools available in mainland China, what are some of the uh, enforcement tools? John, that you think are available?
4: Yeah, sure, so I had alluded to these a little bit earlier on. I think that there's a a conventional wisdom that China is off-bounds somehow when it comes to enforcing offshore uh, judgments based on offshore creditor uh, notes and creditor rights. That's actually not true in our experience. The PRC is actually a very uh, creditor-friendly jurisdiction. There's enforcement bureaus. There's a lot of debtors, I mean, there's a lot of risks that shouldn't have been underwritten, I think. But um, but in terms of what happens once there is a PRC judgment, in recognition of say a Hong Kong judgment, it's actually very creditor friendly. There's a uh, there's a centralized database where the court can actually freeze bank accounts by um, through a computer system that's uh, linked through the court system. Whereas obviously in common law jurisdictions, uh, including the U.S. and England, you'd have to go through individual applications against a third party bank. the um, the administration uh, the administrators that are appointed by the court have the capability to value and sell companies, um, to run companies. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the debtors list is, is meant to give teeth to a lot of these enforcement remedies by punishing people. You can't take the high-speed train. You can't fly. Um, you have trouble making hotel reservations. I think these um, the reason why there are these enhanced remedies in mainland China is because of the more substantial debtor problem in mainland China than, than in some other jurisdictions. But as a result, it's actually quite efficient.
2: Great, just a note to the audience, we have a few more minutes left for the webinar. So please, if you have any further questions, send them in uh, by typing them in the Q&A box. And John, just to follow up on um, the last question about enforcement in mainland China, what are the main challenges that you faced in enforcement in mainland?
4: Sure, sure. So um, I think there's two. The, The primary challenge, as I mentioned, which can be overcome is uh, limited cross border recognition of judgments so conflict of laws? Um, if you have a U.S. judgment, it is not enforceable in China, that's generally recognized as true. There's a few exceptions, as I mentioned, where it happened to be Chinese parties on both sides of a litigation and who happen to be in the United States. And then, but um, generally speaking, U.S. judgments are not exportable. Um, Hong Kong is in a special situation, but I think UK judgments, same thing, BVI judgments. Um, uh, you know, all English, most English common law jurisdictions, Um, appointment of uh, provisional liquidators in English common law jurisdictions, Bermuda, BVI, Cayman, not recognizable in mainland China. Um, Hong Kong is better because we have the mutual recognition, um, uh, the mutual arrangement, and Singapore is also good. They've issued some guidance recently welcoming it. So you look to uh, those two jurisdictions in choice of law, choice of forum that's the first problem the second problem is there's no discovery in civil law jurisdictions and so basically whatever you um, uh, take to court and you have in hand has to carry the day uh, so oftentimes this is developed through investigation which has its own limitations in mainland china um, uh, or through cross-border discovery taken outside of china but then funneled into the chinese proceedings or um uh, uh, or investigation that's done outside of mainland china so it's it's kind of a um, a conundrum because the uh the discovery tools are limited it's limited in terms of its collab, uh, reciprocity with other jurisdictions but once you get there there's actually a, a very potent arsenal
2: great question just came in from the audience if you were advising ping long group which uh for anyone else who um who doesn't know already is the largest creditor and the second largest um shareholder of uh, uh, China fortune land development, which goes back to our example in the presentation. So John, if you were advising Ping An Group, what would be the incentives and downside for Ping An of opting, going through a bankruptcy and restructuring process if creditors are unable to come to a consensus on a restructuring plan? I guess he was el- alluding to Ping An opting for China fortune land, going through a bankruptcy and restructuring.
4: What's well, your it's yeah, it's a trade-off in risks and values, really, but I would never make a decision without knowing what the, the two decisions are very distinctively. Um, because you'd be making the decision blind, essentially. But um uh so they'd have to make some assessment of what they're likely to recover in a pass in a passive position in the bankruptcy, um, based on the amount of claims against the amount of assets on shore. Um and uh the alternative is they need to have some estimate of what the assets are that could be recovered in a direct enforcement scenario, offshore, how long that would take, how much it would cost, and then the likelihood of success before any kind of bankruptcy moratorium um, is recognized in whatever jurisdiction they're in, if one is recognized. And so it's not um, it's not about advisability, and I'm not advising anyone on anything on this um, presentation, but it's not about advisability of restructuring or being activist against China Fortune Land. It's about knowing clarity of options so that you can make the smart choice.
2: Okay, Um, John, just out of a curiosity, how does your work interact with that of other legal advisors in a process? For instance, legal advisor to ad hoc group, legal advisor to bond trustees. How much overlap does your work have with theirs?
4: Yeah. So um, we don't do any restructuring um, and uh, so the transactional end, um, you know, representing ad hoc bondholders in that negotiation. So uh, we actually pair extremely well with restructuring lawyers, with people who represent trustees in order to um, come in as what we call strategic, strategic litigation counsel, um, either to provide advice about alternatives to conduct what we call a, um, an enforcement stress test to see how it would play out. Um, and then in those situations where enforcement is required, uh, we often come in just for the parameters of that and then, uh, and then nothing else. Um, the reason, the, the entire platform of the firm is built towards this. It's about 60% of our practice is just this. Um, so we're highly specialized. And another reason why we come in with restructuring groups is because we don't have an M&A practice capital markets, we're often suing banks. And sometimes that has to be done. Okay. We partner um,
2: well. Great um one question just came in how the ceo can be targeted to incentivize him to agree to a more favorable outcome for creditors
4: yeah so <laughs> i might um i might stay away from this one a little bit usually when there's a personal guarantor um which is not the case in this situation there's um there's uh there's basically a, a direct route to enforce fully the amount of the debt against the personal guarantor and that opens up an entire tool chest of potential remedies throughout the world. And you need to look at all of them. Um, I, I don't know enough about the facts of this case. And my understanding is the CEO is not a personal guarantor. Um, you know, There's all sorts of creative solutions. Every case is one of a kind. And the things that unlock a case are always one of a kind. But um, I, I don't have enough information about that.
2: OK, um, just once, one last call for questions from the audience. We're wrapping up uh, shortly. Um, any, any um last thought, John, on this? Anything that you want our audience to take away? Obviously, it's very technical, it's very um, sophisticated, complicated process, and you need to have a certain risk appetite to take on such work, so.
4: Yeah, so I would say um, the earlier that you start in this process, the better. Um, sometimes people will only start to think about what they can do with the judgment after they've achieved it and it can often be a pirate victory because uh, often the judgment is in a jurisdiction with nothing. Um, right. So you had to sue there, there's no people, there's no assets. And then you have to go through this very arduous process of having that transformed and exported. The best time to look at this before you trade in, obviously, you can get a competitive advantage over the market because in our experience, people don't think about this or they're thinking about it at the wrong level um, oftentimes. And so the people that do can identify pricing discrepancies and then trade in for an enhanced value. You don't have to be activist to find this relevant. Um, so I, I think the key takeaway is um, this is relevant regardless of what your posture is going to be, especially with you know these astronomically 10, large 10-figure investments. Um, so I would encourage people to think about it.
2: Great. Thank you so much, John and James. That's all the questions we have time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence data analytics built for law firms, investors, and advisors. Please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to marketing at reorg.com. Remember, a replay will be available on the Reorg media page within 24 hours. A big thank you to our great panelists, John and James, and to everyone who joined us today. Have a good rest of your day
0: day thank you again for listening to this we rear weekly review find all our podcasts new york.com webinars and podcast page as well as spotify itunes soundcloud and amazon hope your families are healthy and safe have a great weekend and see you next friday